Welcome to another edition of Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer, Vice President and Assistant General Manager of the Iowa Cubs, and it is my distinct pleasure to be joined by Mr. Branch Ricky III, and we'll get into that uh, here shortly. Uh, longtime AAA League President, but a lifetime of association with the game of baseball and, and more, uh, and we're going to get into that as uh, Branch, welcome. It is a pleasure to, to have you here, and uh, thanks so much for taking some time to, to be with us. Well, it's a beautiful morning down here in Texas, and I couldn't think of a better thing to be doing at this hour of the day than joining you on this podcast. I'm really, really pleased to join you. Well, we've had a lot of fun with this, uh, and, and I know uh, today was, is going to be a lot of fun, too. I've been looking forward to this, uh, and I want to start with you know, the family name and the family connection. Uh, when you grow up Randy Wayhofer, one of the things that I always uh, had as a goal was to make a name for myself uh, because it's a very uncommon name. But for you, your name had been made in a way with your grandfather and your father, but you've carved out a niche for your own self and a great career and things. What was it that enticed you to get into the family business knowing the lofty bars that had been set in, in your family? Before I address that, that, uh, that direct uh, question, I'll fall back to the, uh, you're growing up being Randy and, and uh, you had to develop your own uh, recognition. Um, I grew up as Barry Ricky. <laughs> there were two branches in my family, my grandfather, Branch Ricky, and he had named his son Branch Ricky Jr., even though his real name was not Branch Ricky. It was Wesley Branch Ricky. Okay. But in, in, in the area of Southern Ohio, Southern Hill Farming, it was, a, it was a little Methodist kind of community. And there were so many Wesleys that in order to distinguish himself, he went by his middle name. And his middle name had been, rumor has it, was chosen out of the Bible. Uh, in the scripture, I am the vine and ye are my branches. And his, his, his mother wanted him to be one of the branches. Whether that turned out true or not, I don't know. But <laughs> he got the name Branch and illicitly named his son Branch Jr. So there were two branches in the immediate vicinity. They, they were working together with the Dodgers when I was born. So while I was given the full name Branch Barrett Ricky, I grew up being Barry and I was very, very happy being Barry Ricky and not being Branch Ricky, because if you try to go around and introduce yourself as Branch something, Branch anything, you'll find people look at you kind of with a weird, with that prior to uh, recent years when so such a proliferation of unusual names have come into our society. But back when everybody was Tom and Dick and John and Sally and Mary and so forth, Branch really was an oddity. And uh, so it wasn't until after my father had passed away and my grandfather's baseball career was largely uh, at, at an end. As I was going off to college, he, he came up to me and said, would you mind carrying on my name and going by branch? And I didn't want to look cross-eyed at him, but that was not a welcome identity. And I, I have to tell you that while it was not welcome at that time, uh, I didn't like the pressure. I didn't. I didn't want the uh, to to be carrying any load or any responsibility that, that may have followed him and his career and his reputation. I was uh, happier being free from all of that. It was. It was unwelcome. It has become just exactly the reverse as I have gone through my baseball career. What a 
what a what a what an undeserved uh, legacy I have uh, been uh, so blessed with, and uh, to uh, to have that uh, every uh, every day I wake up and and realize how he uh, really did uh, me a great favor by causing me to take on that unwelcome name. So that gives you an insight into what is the answer to your question. I grew up so close to the game. I grew up surrounded by uh, scouts and coaches and managers in, 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 in casual encounters. They were all the time uh, in interfacing with my father and grandfather and, and players, but most especially the scouts and the uh, managers, I would say, the minor league managers, major league managers, they had that mystical character of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of the folklore of the game and their storytelling, their accents, their, their, so many of them country boys. And they carried that with them everywhere they went. And there was such fun. And, and even the competitive juices that were always there, underlying, barbing one way and the other, but, but with, a, with a smile or with a cigar or with spitting tobacco, it was just enticing. How could you not want? There was nothing about the glamour of the game, the, the fact that it was played in front of thousands of fans and uh, that it attracts such attention. That had no interest to me. It was that wonderful character that was so bred into the game by those those folks. So there was a, a long association you had with Major League Baseball through your family, and then your first job was actually at Forbes Field in, in Pittsburgh, your first baseball job. I should <laughs> say, at least according to... Uh, I called it a job. I called it a job. I, I was an office boy. Well, uh, maybe, well, maybe you worked somewhere before you did that, so I didn't want to say it was your first job ever, but your first baseball job, at least, uh, as a high school student, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like uh, to be a fan of the game and working at Forbes Field uh, at a, as a 17-year-old. What, what do you recollect from just the experience of walking into a cathedral of the game every day? Well, uh, quite candidly, I had been in and out of that cathedral all the time from my earlier years as a fan, as, 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 a, as a family member going to games. It was a different thing to walk through that door dragging a a big sack of mail from the post office that I was going to then be responsible for opening all and distributing the mail and so forth. But uh, you're right. It was, it was, it was in its uh, timely way, a, a timeless way, a cathedral of baseball. And uh, it carried with it just an aura and all the people that work there, again, they weren't players or managers or coaches, but they all had this uh, aspect to their daily activities that was enlivened by the fact that we're in this game of baseball. And, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's uh, be part of that uh, passion. And so everywhere I went, I encountered uh, uh, goodwill and, and a whole lot of people that were enthusiastic about what they were doing and, 
even if I was just delivering coffee around to all the office, which I which was a major uh, responsibility in, in my job, delivering coffee. So uh, I did that for after my sophomore year, before my junior year of high school, and then after my junior year of high school, before my senior year in the summers. And, uh, and I'd like to think I did it quite well, but <laughs> I, 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 I never got a raise, I'll say that. It was, very, it was very modestly reimbursed. So what was the culture shock of being sent to Kingsport, Tennessee, since you poured coffee and delivered mail so well? Uh, and growing up in that big league environment, uh, you know, that, that your first break, like many of us in the game, was to go to the smallest of the small and the barest of the bear uh, to really understand how the game really works. Uh, what do you recall about Kingsport, Tennessee and running an Appalachian League club? You're, you're well prepared on my, on my early start here. It, I think it was, I, I tired in my second year of running up two blocks to the, the, to the uh, Point Castle to get coffee. And I bought a big 64 cup percolator and uh, put it in the conference room and uh, charged everybody less for their coffee, gave them bigger mugs. My sisters put nail polish initials on each of the mugs, personified the mugs for everybody in the office. And I gave them free refills. And I think my entrepreneurial spirit was so dazzling in, in, in that venture that they, they thought that I had a future ahead of me. So I'm five days from graduating from high school with a absolutely blank slate in front of my mind what I'm going to do for the summer. I had been accepted to college and I was going to go to college in the fall. And I get a call from the vice president of the, of the, of the Pirates, who's a prankster. He's a prankster. That's, that's all, Irish background. I'm not going to go any deeper into that. But he was well known for all the practical jokes he could play. And he said, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to give you a call. We, uh, the, uh, general man the, uh, man the general manager of our Kingsport club has suddenly had an illness in his family and has had to go home. And we are uh, needing somebody to go down, drive down, uh, we, we, uh, go down to Kingsport and run the club for the summer. And I'm holding on to the phone, trying to wait for the punchline. And uh, <laughs> what, 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 how is he zinging me this time? <laughs> And uh, so it, it was true. And so I went down and uh, found that I was pretty much the sole employee other than the groundskeeper until I hired some people and, and got the season underway. But I, I was going to be younger than any of the players on the team. And I was the general manager and I was operating out of a, an office in a football stadium that the, the, the team played in a football stadium that uh, cut off uh, with a, with a, walled fence throughout the football field to make a baseball field out of it. And my office opened two wooden shutters in order to get light into the office from the outside of the stadium. And I was my own secretary and I was my own everything and often had hours from early, early in the morning to, as you're well aware, well after midnight. And it was an indoctrination into, uh, the nuts and bolts stem to stern of what a minor league club has to accomplish, uh, whether it's whether the players are at home or whether they're on the road. And uh, I couldn't have asked for a better baptism into the minor league game than that. 
that was, and I was fortunate to do it for three years. Visiting with Branch Rickey. Uh, this is Unwritten Rules, and Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer. Be sure you like, share, and subscribe, and, and do all that good stuff. We, we release a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday, and uh, it's been a great pleasure to have Branch so far, and we're, we're just kind of getting started a, a little bit. Uh, so you started as a, as a major league intern, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the modern term we would use in the office. You became a minor league executive pretty quickly. You went back to the major leagues as, as, an, as an executive, as a farm director in a lot of different roles in your life. But then the minor leagues was your home for a long, long time now as a league president at, at the AAA level. I'm sure you've enjoyed many aspects of both. Describe to me how you would uh, describe the balance of the major league, minor league relationship as you know it and you grew up in it and, and being on both sides, uh, the appreciation you gained for, for both. Well, I commented earlier that my father passed away uh, prior to my finishing high school. Uh, he had been a farm director. He was a farm director for the Pittsburgh Ball Club. He had been player development for the Dodgers as uh, previously. So through much of my childhood, I had seen my grand grandfather acting as a general manager, and it always seemed that that was a rather... Um, public and dramatic and uh, uh, demanding role behind the scenes uh, at home. I was uh, aware of so many after hours phone calls that my father was on with all the at that time. Uh, at one time there, the, the, between the Dodgers before the Pirates, uh, my father was overseeing a farm system of 36 today, a farm system of eight clubs. Has, has been, was thought when I became a farm director, I was over eight farm clubs and it was the largest system in, in the majors at the time. And my father had 36. So he was on the phone at all hours because the clubs were spread across the country and they would call in after the games or when problems developed or so forth. And I, and I heard all of those uh, behind the scenes yeah, and gained an insight into the fact that it really is not a game of baseball. It's a game of life. I mean, you're dealing with every character, complexion, component of people developing. They're athletes, yes, but they're developing as people wearing uniforms <laughs> who are having all sorts of miseries and adversities and challenges and successes and extraordinary uh, joys too. It's just a myriad of uh, mixture. And I found that I found that my grand, my father's involvement in player development was so much more exciting to me than was this more formalized uh, grandiose, I'll say grandiose, I don't know that it's grandiose, but uh, of, the, of the major league general manager's role or that. And so I always wanted to become a farm director and, and I was lucky to get in again when I came back from overseas from having spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps. I, I was able to get into scouting and uh, I thought scouting was a wonder since I had not played professional baseball, didn't have the credentials of having played professional baseball. I thought scouting was the way to really develop the the tentacles, the, the roots into the game that I needed. 
and I may and I and I tried to stay with scouting as long as I could. I got involved in the player development and became a farm director for the Pirates and found that I I, I was mesmerized by the complexity of all of that of what my father had done, even though fewer clubs, very challenging and exciting. I it was the most vibrant involvement I could imagine. Uh, I migrated from the Pirates over to the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, in not too long thereafter, I was dismissed by, by, by a person named Marge Schott, mm. who, who uh, conflicted in perspective with uh, things the, that I uh, did and had That's done and was planning, gentle. hoping to do. That's about as gentle and a delicate way to put that as I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, she got me before Major League Baseball got her. That, <laughs> I'll say that. So uh, that changed my orientation in terms of having a job. And I, and I was looking forward to continuing on in baseball and was fortunate then to be approached by the American Association before the Pacific Coast League and, and get involved in minor league baseball. There is no doubt that by the time I was finishing my years as a farm director, I was seeing the major league game go in a direction that was uh, less the traditional game that I had known uh, through my family than it was becoming. There, was, uh, there were different forces. Uh, and when I came over to AAA baseball and the American Association, subsequently the PCL, it just absolutely felt like a glove that fitted perfectly. There was a perspective. Uh, there were uh, people in the game with the same kind of character and persona and uh, attraction to the game for some of the reasons that I had grown up with. And uh, I was just as completely at home in AAA baseball as I believed I could ever be in the sport of baseball. It was a, it was a right niche at a right time for me. A long time of your stay in, my, in AAA baseball would be in association with Sam Burnaby. Uh, and, and as our president, and we had a recent episode with him and everyone in Des Moines. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably are familiar with Sam in some sort of way if you found your way to this Iowa Cubs publication. Uh, and, and we certainly uh, like to brag on Sam quite a bit, and at the risk of sounding like I'm pandering to the boss, I certainly would like your uh, uh, thoughts on you talk about meeting people with the same mindset and passion for the game and, and things. And you and Sam worked so closely on a lot of things above and beyond just how the Iowa Cubs were operating in the league that you were uh, presiding over. What would you tell us about the Sam that you know, uh, not sharing an office space with him every day, but certainly sharing a lot of conversation and shared experience in the game of, and leading it for that matter? Oh, far different from what your character is. It's been a ragged thing. It's been terrible. <laughs> I, I want to tell you from the outset, it's been onerous and challenging. And, and I've, I, I've come close to suspending them. I've, I've, I've thought about fighting them a very large amounts. I wondered how much discipline could be affected and, and change his attitude and perspective. But I threw the towel in the very first day I met him. 
and, and decided to take him for what he was. And it's been it's been a joy ever since, to tell you the truth. Sam is, of course, as you well know, and you know that how how much fun I'm having. <laughs> you learn you you learn more than we than you let on from that uh, vice president of the Pirates that sent you to Kingsport about zinging and being a prankster. <laughs> Oh, Joe Tool was a good was a good mentor. Yep. Um, uh, it, it it was a I think it was a serendipitous thing uh, that I came into the American Association uh, at a time when Sam was uh, uh, really getting uh, established and. Uh, able to so ably communicate back to a league office what a league office needed to know from a from a club standpoint at the AAA level. My my immersion had been at the Appalachian League, rookie league <laughs> level, and and uh, while I had been a farm director and around AAA baseball, I don't care how much you are a farm director, how much you've been around AAA baseball, how much you've sent players and, and recalled players and interfaced with AAA baseball until you've run a AAA club, uh, you don't know about running a AAA club, and, and you know what I'm talking about. Sure. And Sam was that person who was so able to articulate and uh, personify the the, the, the toils and the, and, the, and the challenges and the excitement and the satisfactions, all of the elements, uh, and 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 translate that to how a league president needed to interface. I can I can remember one of the early. It wasn't an early phone call necessarily, but a, a call that I had that was representative of that kind of thing was when he called me. He said, you know, I've, the Cubs have just sent a pitcher here, Branch. I hope your umpires are ready. He talks to the baseball. I, I mean, he talks to the baseball branch. And uh, uh, that's not the only quirky things he does. He does some other quirky things. And uh, we, you're, you're just going to have to get your umpires ready for this because uh, he's the real thing. He's the real thing. Well, of course, here's a, a guy that is so quirky. He should have been, he should have been put on some kind of uh, truck to, to back to where he came from and ends up, what, uh, 10, 12, 13 years in the big leagues. Uh, very successful. Very Dirk Wendell. Successful. He lives back in the area. I, I wasn't going to mention any names. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to indict. There's, there's only one. Or, only one guy you can be talking about. He might be listening right now. He lives. He, he comes back and he lives in De, in the Des Moines area. Again. Oh, does he? Well, just a wonderful, a wonderful contribution to the game of baseball. Wonderful contribution to the league and uh, and to the Iowa Cubs history. Uh, you know, it, it, it just exactly what minor league baseball is all about and the kind of thing that uh, that that's not really representative of the kind of thing that Sam did to alert the league office but it, 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 it it's a good uh, colorization I'd say of the kind of thing that Sam was always aware of what are the umpires doing what is the league office doing what what plans do we have what what's our schedule about and he was able to see, the game through so many different 
uh, lenses and uh, think on different fronts so that whenever he was talking to different people, he was uh, really on a dialogue that was understanding their uh, challenges with the game. Um, can you describe a little bit what, uh, without comparing to any other clubs, uh, we talk a lot to our season ticket holders, our sponsors, our community about um, Des Moines being a small market in terms of AAA baseball, but trying to be a leader of the industry. You touched a little bit on that with Sam. Michael Gartner, our owner, is certainly a big part of that. Can you describe from your perspective as a, as a league president and having Des Moines in your league, what are the attributes of this organization that you and this community that you appreciated that you would like our fan base and the people that are listening to this to, to understand? Uh, and maybe I'm trying to set it up a little bit too colorfully and you please be honest, but I'd, I think I understand at least the tone of what the answer is going to be. And, and I think it's important for folks that follow the Iowa Cubs to hear that from people that don't get a paycheck from the Iowa Cubs. Yeah, this is a, that's a nice setup. I appreciate that, uh, the, the tenor of that question because you're uh, absolutely right. Um, the special character of the Iowa franchise. It, it, it didn't start with, uh, uh, with Michael Gardner or Sam. It, 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 uh, there, there's a chemistry, I think, in Des Moines and between baseball and Des Moines. Uh, and I understand uh, some of the, some of the uh, color of, of my next statement has been stolen by the fact that Michael has confided to you that when he came to the helm, uh, I said to him, congratulations, you've just now spent more money than anybody ever has in the history of baseball in the smallest market that we have in AAA baseball. And, uh, and it was so tongue-in-cheek, but Mike, Michael was such a breath of fresh air, such a wonderful, exciting infusion. It was just like a, an injection of uh, uh, steroids, I'd say. Um in, 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 in saying that and in having that kind of candor with Michael, I think the perspective I had was there wasn't, a, there wasn't anything you couldn't address with him and accept that he, he understood challenges. He welcomed challenges. He was excited by challenge. And he immediately, uh, I think, even said to the press, uh, "I've been told this Burnaby guy is a is a talented guy. He's my he's my man. He's gonna he's gonna run things." So with Michael and Sam paired, it was it was a magical uh, thing that uh, was going to go forward from there. There was there was no question that we were headed in uh, a very positive direction with two uh, real visionaries, real visionaries in the minor league game set. And of course, at that point, uh, Sec Taylor uh, had been, uh, I guess Sec Taylor was about to be, was about to be, uh, no, Sec Taylor had been, re been replaced by that time and uh, the new park was in place. Uh, but 
the the ballpark itself has a role in that because while Sec Taylor may have been a warm and friendly and uh, nostalgic kind of setting for baseball, it was the uh, rebuilding of the ballpark that is now principal that um, has made this really uh, a, a complete package. That ballpark is not one of the most lavish or one of the most uh, grandiose in AAA baseball, but it may be the most effective. It may be the most wonderful combination of factors that all work. There's, there's not a whole lot of uh, useless uh, territory in Principal Park, and I can remember the first time I saw, I don't know what that kid's uh, jungle gym kind of area is. Um, what is that called? The playground. Yeah, we just call it the playground. It's not very fancy. First time I saw that, nobody else had it in minor league baseball. And, uh, nobody else would have spent that kind of money for a non-baseball activity. And I looked at Sam and Sam said, Michael said, uh, uh, go ahead if, if that's what I think is best. And I thought, holy smokes, this is, and I, 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 it's the kind of thing that was uh, out front and uh, just a wonderful addition uh, to useless space, something that wasn't being used for anything else and fan friendly. And I, I just, I think of that ballpark, every addition and the way that Michael and Sam have kept a, a tie with the city, with the community. That bond seems to me as tight or tighter than any other market in AAA baseball. There's just a, uh, a, a spirit of collaboration, cooperation that uh, is unparalleled, I think. Uh, it's magnificent. And I think the fans sense that. I think the fans join in that. But there's been a constant uh, modernization. There's been a constant uh, upgrading. And uh, even though the, they aren't uh, necessarily things that the average man would uh, be bowled over by, they just keep refreshing and keep that ballpark a perfect setting, a perfect setting for AAA baseball. Branch Rickey is our guest on today's episode of Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer. Please be sure to subscribe and like and, and share this conversation. And um, Branch, we're, we're almost out of time, but uh, we like these conversations to be timeless in a lot of ways as they live on the internet and want people to listen at any time and, and be effectual. But uh, we are going to uh, release this podcast during the week that Major League Baseball will celebrate Jackie Robinson Day, which is annually on, on April 15th. And we've talked about your grandfather. You were a very young boy at the time that Jackie uh, made uh, history and in, in becoming uh, breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Uh, but you're certainly well-versed and, and almost a part of the story by your association with your grandfather and the role that he played. What does watching the festivities around Jackie Robinson Day mean to you 
and the relationships you've built and really being close to the real story and, 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 and having your family have been a part of history? Well, thanks a whole lot for saying we have limited time and opening the door on a subject that demands for minimal treatment <laughs> as much as we've already spent in the entire time period that we've been on. So for me well, to try let, to capitalize Let me this interrupt is, one second. We have as much time as you want to give. I have no deadline on this. I'm being sensitive of your time. So however long you want to give this, I'm here I for that. I have to imagine your listeners are worn out already. So <laughs> let me try to capitalize. But this is, this is such a larger than life. Uh, it's been, it, it's certainly been a dominating secondary influence in my life uh, and and uh, caused such a, a, a wonderful impact on my life. My uh, appreciation is that the coming together of my grandfather and Jackie Robinson in 1945 it perhaps was something almost uh, a miracle because it was a man who my grandfather was committed to trying to find a, uh, a way to integrate baseball and do it in the right way. And the fact that he, that Jackie Robinson was the person that he was able to identify for that role um, it just seems far beyond happenstance. I, I don't care how much intensive effort. The fact that Jackie Robinson was there at that time in history when this was going to happen has to be something close to a miracle, if not a miracle, because Jackie Robinson did what he did, and he was so much larger than life, Extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. And while there have been so many athletes of his time, before his time, even subsequent to Jackie, who accomplished many greater records, were, were far more prominent in their sports than Jackie was, the legacy that he has left causes us to, causes many, many, many other athletes to pale by comparison. Jackie's, Jackie's impact is still growing. What he has meant to our country is profound. It's off the chart of athletics. It's way beyond athletics. And Martin Luther King was uh, eloquent, I think, in saying, both in correspondence to my grandfather and in correspondence to Jackie and saying, we couldn't have done this without what you did. What kind of testimony is that? So uh, Jackie, uh, to have the Ricky family name identified with Jackie Robinson, that in itself will be uh, something that I will never escape. And, 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 and I say that in the ironic way, as if you would ever, 
and, and I did want to, and I, I kind of alluded to it. It was a burden I didn't want to carry early in life. It was my grandfather's, and what a wonderful thing for me to carry on to reflect uh, in that regard. But I would point to the Jackie Robinson Foundation that never got its start while Jackie was alive, but was brought uh, by his widow, Rachel, into existence. And the purpose of that foundation has been to take inner city youth, identify them, kids that couldn't afford to get into college and would never have been able to stay in college if they had been accepted because of some of the handicaps that, that would have uh, gone with them. And her, the structure that she put in place for this Jackie Robinson Foundation and the funding and the uh, nurturing element of bringing them together in classes, groups of uh, generally 20 to 30 or so a year, and uh, what she has accomplished over the, over the period of uh, this foundation's legacy where every student that graduated was guaranteed a job by a corporation that supported the Jackie Robinson Foundation. Rachel put that together. And their graduation rate has been over 97% of inner city kids that have gone on to college and graduated. 97% of the, of the kids going into college have graduated. My alma mater, which I'm so proud of, can't hold a candle to that. And I won't name it because I don't wanna, I don't wanna, no college can hold a candle to that because generally most colleges have a, a graduation rate of less than 75% of the freshmen that come in, I, I believe. The point that I'm trying to make in, in, in part of this is I don't believe Rachel herself could have ever achieved what she achieved without the inspiration of Jackie. She would have never done what she's done. She would have never risen to the heights of a Jackie Robinson Foundation and all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids now with college degrees and jobs in corporate America. I say corporate America or whatever jobs they're in sure. that have that have uh, uh, just uh, been empowered all out of that spiritual power that was Jackie that was Jackie and Rachel. I'm not so sure that I don't have a belief that Rachel may have been equal or greater a power than Jackie. So there's something there that I don't want to go into, but uh, I, I, I do want, I just did go into sure. it. Um, what, what a blessing the two of them have been on this nation. And the fact that my grandfather had a vision that he wanted to do it, that he didn't need to rush into doing it without finding the right person, and that he was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time with Jackie. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I've already said, I think it's something close to a miracle. Uh, in listening to you talk, that was my thought exactly. It was the, the pairing of Jackie and your grandfather, but the pairing of Jackie and Rachel, um, all of those things, all those bonds can't be broken. 
I just, just, just want to say are, that are imperative. In, in, in looking back, I don't think Jackie succeeds if he signs with anybody else. My grandfather cautioned him, and the greatest thing my grandfather did was, Jackie, you're going to have to Jack, – I, I, 50 years later, I was at a uh, touchdown club dinner in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and who happened to come in, sit down at the, this empty seat that uh, was right next to me, but Jimmy Brown of the, of the uh, Cleveland Browns, the most intense football player I've ever seen in my life on, on TV. I had never met him in person, never seen during the dinner, he put, turned his chair back away from the table and uh, put his head down as if wanting to talk to me, towards me. And I pushed my chair square uh, to the table and around and put my, our foreheads this far apart. And, and he wanted to talk and uh, he wanted to talk. And he had a very, very high regard for my grandfather, which surprised me. I didn't know that there was anything football to baseball that would have spilled over in that regard. And he said, you know who the most intense athlete is I've ever known in my life? Well, I'm sitting forehead to forehead with Jimmy Brown, and he's <laughs> asking me who the most intense athlete is. And 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 I stammered. I, I, I was thinking I'd better say Jimmy Brown. He might throttle me right there. <laughs> And and I and I stammered to to, to I here I am I'm a, an adult and and he said Jackie Robinson's the most intense athlete I've ever known in my life and he was probably right uh, he, he was a student of intensity he he understood intensity Jackie Robinson was one of the most intense people who's ever walked on the field it was a big big major flaw a huge danger the disaster that could have beset his baseball career my grandfather asked him very simply if he could turn the other cheek could he turn the other cheek and this was for the first several years of his career at the end of 1947, his rookie year, he was virtual unknown in April, virtual unknown in April when he broke into Major League Baseball. In, in, in October of that year, Look Magazine took a, took a uh, poll and asked who's the most admired American of their readers. Probably not a black reader on, uh, in responding to that poll in 1947. These are probably mostly all white readers. And the survey came back that Bing Crosby was number one, most admired of the United States. But what's important is number two on the poll was Jackie Robinson. This is white readers saying that Jackie Robinson in a period of six months had become the most admired American. His restraint, his ability to stand above abuse from the American mostly white fan, almost all the, all the abuse came from the white fan, and his ability, and the white players, and the white managers, the white coaches, the white umpires, all of the abuse, and he rose above it. It's inspiration to us today. It's inspiration to us today that he was able to deal with that and outcompete. He wasn't even he, he the the average sports writer was projecting that Jackie could not compete in the major leagues in those days. He not only competed, 
He went to rookie of the year. Two years later, he was MVP in the major leagues. He's shown so far above. He shot far above everybody. He carried the Dodgers to the pennant that year. And uh, he, uh, most of the Dodgers players said afterwards, we were, we were, he, he put us on his shoulders for the month of August. An inspiration, an inspiration, an inspiration in so many ways. And uh, I'll never get over it. Well, I, I, I've always felt that the most underappreciated trait of great leadership is not making it about you. And your grandfather made it about Jackie, but then Jackie made it about Rachel, and Rachel has made it about the future generations. And while all of those main characters are pillars in this story, it was the selflessness of all of them that elevated them. And I saw a lot of those traits in you as our league president for the years that I was involved and for the humility and the humor that you've shared this morning. I'd, I give you my sincere thanks for that and for our listeners too. This has been a lot of fun um, and, and has been the case with most of our guests. We could do this three or four times without running out of material. And this is why this has been such a fun project. But uh, I know you have other commitments that you uh, need to get to today. Uh, but we may track you down again uh, and do this because I want to hear about your uh, time as a wrestling official in the Olympics. But that's a we don't have enough time for that, I know, uh, for certain. But there's more to this story that we'll get to. But Branch, thank you very much. It's been a, a, a pleasure to learn from you, uh, to get to know you, uh, to be associated with you, and I, I appreciate the time. Well, this has been a pleasure for me to join you, and I hold you in high esteem both professionally and personally, and thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate that very much. This has been uh, an Iowa Cubs podcast, Unwritten Rules. I'm Randy Wayhofer. That's Branch Rickey III. And uh, I hope that you have distinctly enjoyed this as much as we have. And uh, we will see you next time, talk to you next time on the podcast. Uh, Be sure to like, subscribe, listen, and look for that new episode uh, every Tuesday.